My guest this episode is a rare breed, a Montreal native and a Jersey boy, Pierre Maguire. Pierre serves as an inside the glass analyst for the NHL on NBC and has covered women's and men's hockey the past four Olympics. He's also had a successful coaching career, from winning back-to-back Stanley Cups in Pittsburgh as an assistant coach to being the head coach of the Hartford Whalers. He shared a few other stories with me. Why the winningest coach in NHL history calls him at least once a day, how he's as comfortable throwing a football as he is passing a puck, what his daughter did in the wake of a mistake he made, how he responded, and how often that incident turns into advice he passes along to his other mentees. In my conversation with Pierre Maguire, we talk about how these experiences help fuel his passion for mentoring others. Welcome to another episode of the Sports Mentoring Project. I'm John Schwartz. My guest today is Pierre Maguire, the pride and joy of Bergen County, New Jersey, and the first to go inside the glass. Today, we'll get an inside look at his view on mentoring. Welcome, Pierre. John, really nice to visit with you. Thank you very much. Absolutely. As usual, let's start with 10 quick hitters. Okay. Do you have a mentor? And if so, who is it? Uh, my mentor would be Scotty Bowman, the winningest coach in the history of the National Hockey League. And who chose who? And how did that relationship come to be? Very interesting. I was coaching at St. Lawrence University. Scotty was broadcasting for Hockey Night in Canada. Scotty was bringing his daughter, Alicia, to St. Lawrence. He came and watched me run a practice. At the end of the practice, I went back to go ride a bike, and all of a sudden, Scotty Bowman shows up in our office, and he says, I really enjoyed that practice. Can I get your phone number? And the rest is history. He started calling me all the time. Now, this is before there were cell phones, John, and uh, he started calling me all the time, and he shared his number with me, and we became lifelong friends after that. That was probably in 1988. What's Scotty's superpower? Uh, ability to listen and also to teach. And he is so amazingly spot on with his life lessons. It's phenomenal. What's yours? Uh, I like to think that I'm a good listener and that I can adapt and overcome on the fly. And how has your relationship with Scotty changed over time? Well, when we worked together and lived together, we were uh, basically like a husband and wife. (laughs) And so we would be on the bench and some things we would agree with and some things we couldn't, you know, we won two Stanley cups together, which was amazing to me at the time. Uh, I had to pinch myself thinking that I was actually working and living in the same apartment with this gentleman. Um, But I think the biggest thing was Scotty, uh, our relationship over time changed because he became older and retired and I became younger and started pushing, but it's always been the same kind of relationship to be honest. It's always been fun and, and very enlightening for me. In my research, I uncovered the fact that you may or may not speak to him almost every day. Uh, We we actually spoke twice this afternoon. (laughs) We we speak a lot. Scotty's 86 years of age right now. He splits his time between Sarasota, Florida and Buffalo, New York. And uh, we talk about different things going around the National Hockey League virtually every day. If he were here with us right now talking about mentorship, what would you say to him? I would say thank you very much. I appreciate everything you did for me. You gave me a chance when nobody else was prepared to give me a chance. And you gave me an amazing opportunity because there are not a lot of 28 year olds being hired by professional sports teams and put in positions where they have significant say. And Scotty did that with me and I'll always be grateful. And he really trusted me. I'll always be grateful for his trust. The mentee turns into a mentor. What are the best qualities of a mentor? 
I think being forthright, I think communicating openly and honestly, John, I think more than anything else, taking a passionate look at the person that you're mentoring and caring about that person, whether it's for an educational opportunity, a job opportunity, an athletic opportunity, I think the most important thing is to be forthright and honest. So for instance, I'll give you an example. There are tons of people that contact me and say, can you help me get a job in broadcasting? I'm like, I sure would love to help you get a job in broadcasting, but here are the different things you have to do. And if you think you're getting my job, you're probably not. I won the lottery. So how are you going to position yourself going forward so that you have a chance to at least be in the lottery and compete for that position, but you're not going to get it right away. So how do you be a good mentee? I think you have to listen really well. You have to be willing to accept criticism. Uh, you have to be, and it's mostly constructive criticism. I've never dealt with people that have mentored me over time that have criticized me and it's not to make me better. Uh, you're not criticizing somebody to punish them. So I think a great mentee listens and then whatever they've digested, they put it into practice. So who are your mentees? I've got a lot of people that call me and rely on me. Uh, mostly young people getting out of college. You believe it or not, I do a lot with prep school, uh, high school hockey players that want to get a chance to go to different colleges. So I try to explain to them what they have to do on the ice, what they have to do off the ice, what they have to do in the classroom. Um, so I work with a lot of different people. I don't ask anything for it. I don't publicize it. Uh, more than anything else, people reach out to me. A lot of times it's parents of younger people, John, that reach out and they say, can you help my son? Um, could you help my daughter? And so I, I have different people that reach out, but more than anything else, I try to be forthright and I try to pay it back the way Scotty Bowman paid me. And I'll always be grateful to Scotty for everything he ever did for me. In a career like yours, you get a lot of advice, some from Scotty, some from elsewhere. What's the best and worst advice you've ever received? The best advice I have to say took place at the draft in 1990 in Vancouver, British Columbia. It was my first draft working at a table and the late Bob Johnson, who was our head coach at the time in Pittsburgh, during a TV timeout, came up behind me and he said, what information do you have on this player? So I opened my book and I showed him all the information. He says, that's a lot of information. That's good. And he looked right at me and he said, just remember, information is key. So that was the best advice I ever gotten. So every single day that I've gone to work, whether it was as a coach, as a scout, as a broadcaster, I've tried to be the most informed on the players that I'll be covering or the teams I'll be scouting or the coaches I'll be coaching against. The worst advice I probably got is just swing for the fence. It's okay. Going for home runs is okay. You swing for the fence and a lot of times you're going to strike out. And sometimes it's hard to bounce back from a strikeout, especially when the job competition pool is extremely high. As a hockey coach for 25 years myself, I'd like to quote the late Bob Johnson and say, it's a great day for hockey. I was and uh, it always is in Pittsburgh and elsewhere. <laughs> I was there one of the days that he said that. And uh, believe it or not, it was just before the first day of training camp in 1990 uh, in Pittsburgh. And it was pretty phenomenal. We had an 18-year-old player that we took at that draft in Vancouver by the name of Yarmir Yager. And he was pretty good, John. And I remember... Bob running practices that day and just sitting in the stands watching and at the end of it, how enthused the players were. Bob had this uncanny ability to communicate his ideology to the players and he took complicated issues and made them really simple. And I think that really helped our players. And obviously we went on to win the cup in 91 and we went on to win the cup in 92. 
even though the coach had passed away after the 91 cup. It, it was amazing. I'll never forget the impact that Bob had on our players. And I think a big reason why John is ability to communicate and tell the truth. And on the organization, I had the pleasure of being an intern for the Pittsburgh Penguins in 1993. And I could tell you that Bob cast a long shadow in a good way on the organization and the city. And it's one of the greatest franchises in sports. So it's, not, it's nice to be sitting with somebody who was a part of it. So let's transition, Pierre, to mentorship. Specifically, Mike Lang, Paul Steigerwald, Sam Rosen, Doc Emmerich, Danny Gallivan, Foster Hewitt, Dick Irvin, John Davidson. What's one word to describe them all? Professional. Every single one of them is a professional. Uh, Mike Lang and I spent a ton of time together. My time in the Pittsburgh Penguins, Paul Steigerwald and I spent a lot of time together. When I was a young boy growing up in Montreal, Danny Gallivan was the voice that I would hear in my ear because we didn't have cable TV back then. And we didn't have a lot of color TV back then. And we only had two games a week to watch, but usually there were four games. So the other games would be on the radio and I'd be listening to Danny. Um, John Davidson and I were partners uh, in 2005 and six, and I'll, I'll never forget doing the Torino Olympics with John and how much I enjoyed his professionalism. Doc Emmerich's the most informed and professional person I know. I would say the key word for all those people is professionalism. Did Mike ever really try scratching his back with a hacksaw? No, but I think there were some nights when we'd be on the road where he probably wanted to <laughs> scratch his back. Uh, we, had some, we had so much fun together. I have so much time for Mike Lang, one of the truly great personalities in the National Hockey League. Phenomenal person. Well, I want to talk a little bit about another compelling personality. Uh, and for our listeners, you'll have to put context around who this person is. But there's a gentleman named Tony Karsich who was a part of your life. Tell our listeners about who he was and the impact he had on you. Well, the good thing is Coach Carson's is still living, so I'm really grateful for that. Um, he was my high school football coach at Bergen Catholic. I was his quarterback, and uh, he taught me so many life lessons, uh, how to be tough, how to compete, how not to mail it in, um, how to be really, really strong in terms of being in the huddle and have a commanding voice. Um, I talked to Coach Carson probably twice a month, three times a month now. Uh, he's working as a fundraiser at the old high school at Bergen Catholic. Um, we just put together a big thing to try to get a scoreboard for the stadium there. And it looks like it's working out really well. So I'm really grateful for that. And, and Coach Carson, um, I spoke at the hockey banquet last year at Bergen Catholic. And I didn't really talk about the hockey program. I talked about the football program. And I talked about Coach Carson and the way he influenced my life. And I don't think I would be where I am today had it not been for Coach Carson and the way he mentored me as, as a football player and as a student athlete. Yeah, well, there's another great coach there right now who I grew, grew up in the same town with, Vito Campanelli, and I know he's taking care of those boys and have the, has the, have them, we'll have them ready to go next year. That's great. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about being a teammate and being a mentor at the same time, or being mentored at the same time. And a few days ago, I spoke with one of your partners, Kenny Albert, and he told me that you did about somewhere about 25 games in 25 days. Some days were, you know, two, three games at a time. And, you know, being in the confined quarters inside the bubble during the Stanley Cup playoffs in Edmonton um, sort of teaches you a lot about your teammates. What did you learn? I learned a lot about a lot of things in the bubble. I was there for nine weeks, John, and that's a different way to live. 
But what I learned is I learned a lot about the officials. I lived in the same hotel with the officials and I would work out with the officials almost every day. And they have stories too. You know, in our league, they're just guys with numbers on their back. But if you really get to know them, they're people that have families, they have, you know, wives, significant others, children. They have the same ups and downs like we all do, peaks and valleys, but they never get any applause. So I learned a lot about the officials and they're really good teammates for all of us that work in the National Hockey League. So that was something that I really enjoyed. Kenny Albert's been my teammate and, and dear friend for probably the last 15 to 20 years. And I learned how diligent he is and how passionate he is about being right all the time on the air. He's just an amazingly hard worker. He's a spectacularly loyal teammate. Um, and I think the biggest thing with Kenny is just how a positive, a positive he is on a day-to-day -day basis. So I learned a lot about a lot of things, but I think more than anything else, I learned about how important uh, teamwork is, especially when you're in a confined area like the bubble, which we were for nine weeks. Well, something I also learned about you is that you're not afraid to take risks. You, um, you were, uh, you know, in addition to changing your career from coaching in the hockey operations to being on the other side, being a media member, uh, you also, you know, were the youngest coach at the time, the first head coaching experience, and is the youngest head coach the NF NHL has ever seen. Do I have that right? Uh, no, there was somebody younger than me. It was actually Gary Green. He was 26. But I was, in that year, I was the youngest coach. And you're very darn close to being right on that, but you're close enough. Um, it's interesting how that job facilitated itself. I left the Pittsburgh Penguins after two Stanley Cups. I was hired by Brian Burke, who was the new general manager in Hartford. And the job was assistant coach, assistant GM, and, and doing a lot to try to rebuild the organization. The organization was down and out. And when Brian hired me, uh, along with Paul Holmgren and Kevin McCarthy, we were told it was a five-year rebuild. The problem was, as you know, in pro sports, John, everybody tells you a certain time frame, and then the time frame changes. Brian left after nine months. So the man that hired us all, left after nine months of his five-year plan. So that changed the dynamic for all of us. I went from being assistant coach and assistant GM to basically being co-general manager, responsible for doing all the contracts and going overseas. So my coaching stopped. And I was actually in Sweden uh, trying to sign a player that we needed to sign by a certain date. I think it was November the 9th. And I was tracking him down. His name was Andre Nikolishin. And halfway through trying to track this guy down, I got a call from Hartford and they said, you got to come back. We're going to make a coaching change and you're going to be the next head coach. So I actually got on a plane, flew back from Stockholm to Newark, drove back to Hartford. And the next day they had a press conference and I was the coach. How'd that make you feel? Different. It was really different because I thought the one thing was we were going to be able to build it up through the draft and through free agency. And that was one of my organizational strengths that I brought from Pittsburgh to Hartford I knew the team wasn't particularly good. I knew we had a lot of work to do. And I was sure that we'd get at least two years to fix it. I didn't know the owner was going to sell the team after one year, which Mr. Gordon, who's a friend of mine, by the way, Mr. Gordon sold our team after that year. And I was out of, out of a job. Talk about being out of a job. What does that do to your psyche as someone who worked his entire life to, to get to that point? You know, it was interesting. I got fired on a Friday afternoon. I actually was coming back from doing a scouting job in the spring. It was actually late May over in uh, Sweden, Czech Republic. It was Czechoslovakia then and uh, Italy, in Bolzano, Italy, where the world championships were being played. And I flew back. It was a Friday afternoon. I got fired that afternoon. 
And the next day I got hired by the Ottawa Senators. So I wasn't out of work very long. And I got right back on the horse right away. So I was very fortunate to have that happen. Very fortunate. What scares you? Not living up to the expectation that I create for, for myself. Uh, I have really high standards for myself. And if I can't live up to them, that scares me. So I'm prepared to do whatever it takes to measure up to the standards that I think I have to hold myself to. So if you were your own mentor, what advice would you have for, your, for yourself on how to process that? Every single day, be the hardest working person. Every single day, be the most honest with yourself. And if you haven't lived up to your expectation, figure out a way to fix it pretty quick. You obviously have gone from, I think I said earlier, mentee to mentor. What is your proudest mentor moment? Oh, I have, I have a lot of them. I think one of them is, I don't know if you can mentor your children, John. Sure. But, but my daughter is an amazingly resourceful person. And uh, she's a national champion rower. She, it's not her natural sport. Um, she only learned it when we moved from Canada to Connecticut. And she's experienced a lot of heartache, too. It's a very competitive. When you get to that level, it's amazingly competitive, whether it's for national teams or winning national championships. And there have been times when she's been kicked right in the shins. And I told her, you got to find a way to battle back. And I watched her grow as a young woman into this really spectacular elite person that cares so much about other people and is maybe one of the best leaders I've ever seen because she's used negativity as a way to find positive ways to overcome it. So I would say of all the mentees that I've had, she'd probably be the best one. Honestly, she probably would be. Well, I want to talk a little bit about Justine and, you know, I, I have a daughter too. And, um, She's 16. And I like to say that she teaches me more than both of my twin boys put together. And <laughs> <laughs> your daughter is, is a rower at Dartmouth. What has she taught you? Uh, how important it is to be tough. How important it is to PPW, prove people wrong. How important it is to be uh, somebody that's willing to accept criticism and not take it personally. Uh, she's really taught me a lot. And I love, I love watching her row. I love watching her compete. Uh, she trains on like, I wish hockey players could see how rowers train. Um, I think they'd be shocked. They think they're working hard. They're working nothing compared to what rowers do. Um, so she's taught me the importance of, of just how being diligent can really help you. Uh, she's taught me a lot, but loyalty is the biggest thing. She's, she's the most amazing person in my life in terms of being loyal. And I, I really appreciate that part of it. As a parent myself, we talk a lot around the dinner table about the impact of cancel culture. And after you partnered with women's hockey player, Kendall Coyne Schofield on a broadcast, some of your remarks were criticized, but you immediately stepped up, accepted responsibility, apologized and said that it broke your heart, quote unquote. And that speaks to your character. But my question is, what was your conversation like afterwards with Justine? That's, that's a great question. Uh, first of all, I, it's, you know, my daughter's an athlete. I respect all women athletes. I've done the Women's World Championships in 2005 in Linköping, Sweden. Uh, I've done the Women's Olympic Games in 2006, 2010, 2014, 2018. I've been with the USA Women's Water Polo Team in 2012 and 2016. Um, I'd like to think that I try to be an ambassador for their sport. I was heartbroken when, when the negativity came out from that. I tried to face it right away. Uh, it was something I didn't understand, but I totally appreciate where everybody was coming from on it. 
But the biggest thing to me is when I talk to my daughter, she goes, dad, you're my dad. I, I know how much you care about women's sports. I know how much you care about women's hockey. I know this is totally miscast. And so I had no issues with her. But what I try to explain to people, especially, and I try to confront this head on. I have a mother. I have a sister that was an amazing athlete in college who I drove around to all these different competitions. I have a daughter that's a national champion rower who's a division one athlete. If I didn't think much of women athletes, I might get beat up by all three of them. So, you know, I, I found it really difficult to digest. I talked, I talked to Kendall a lot. I work with AJ Malesko. I've done, I think the last three Olympic games with AJ. So I, I don't think that was a problem. I think, you know, I misspoke and I didn't mean to say anything in a negative way at all, but that's how it was seen. And I apologize for it right away. And I think that's what you have to do. You have to be honest, open and accept the criticism and move on. And that's great advice for all mentors because we are all fallible human beings. We all make mistakes. And I find personally that that's when you need to hear other voices and for mentors supporting, doing the right thing. And I know as a father, you and I share, uh, we, we both have sons named Ryan. And I want to hear a little bit about Ryan, um, who committed to play hockey at Colgate. Um, and he, he may have the opportunity, a real, he has a real opportunity to play in the NHL. You know, describe what the, the experience may be like for you if you were ever to cover him as a member of the media. Well, that's a, that's a loaded question. Uh, Ryan left home early. He just turned 14. He wanted to go to prep school in Boston. He went to an elite school there that we're so grateful that they accepted him, and he loved it there. He was there for four years at Belmont Hill. Um, and then he left Belmont Hill to go play junior hockey in British Columbia, where he is right now with the Penticton V's and the BCHL, which is one of the top junior leagues in, in North America. It's just phenomenal. And so he's been away from home for a long time, John, and we communicate mostly in the summer, believe it or not. Um, I really am his coach. I am his mentor. We have a group of about 10 young men, some are college players, some are minor league pro players, some are just getting to, uh, getting to college. And so we skate up in Boston uh, five out of seven days a week and we train. And that's where I really find out about how much I love being around young people and trying to help them being a mentor, being a coach. And I think the biggest thing with Ryan, he doesn't need to be pushed. Um, it's a 5:15 wake up call every day. And usually he's up already making breakfast and we're on the ice by six 30. And, you know, it's about a three hour commitment every day just to be on the ice and work out. So I like the fact that he's a self-starter. I like the fact that he's a type A. I like the fact that he is an amazing teammate. Um, and all his coaches tell me that he's just a fantastically loyal and good teammate. So some of that mentoring has worn off on him. So I'm happy about that. I'm going to ask you to imagine now it's Stanley cup finals are over. You had a great telecast of all seven games on NBC. Yeah. And now it's time to have a little fun, play a little golf you get a chance to pick a foursome and it can be three other people from any, any time in history. Yeah. Who would be the three people that would be in your fantasy foursome? Oh, that's a good and one. Why? Well, one of them would be my late father. We had so much time, uh, fun playing golf together. I miss him every day. So he would be one for sure. I just saw not to be morbid here, but I had an Irish punt uh, from when I played golf over in Ireland and I kept that in my bag all the time. And whenever we played, say, Someday you got to bring me to Ireland. Someday you got to bring me to Ireland and play. And we were going to go. And then unfortunately he passed away in a farming accident up on our land in Canada. But when he passed, he was in his coffin. It was an open coffin. I took that punt out of my golf bag and put it in his hands. 
so he has it. So I'd want to play golf with him so he could use the punt. That's number one. Uh, Bobby Orr would be number two. Um, he's a good friend, somebody I respect so much, and uh, think the world of Bobby. And uh, I'd love to play with him, uh, even though I have played with him before. I think that would be awesome to make that three of the, you know, foursome. And then on the fourth one, good question. You know what, Vince Lombardi. And I'll tell you why. I wrote my baccalaureate thesis on professional football and its reflections on American society. And it was titled, Winning Isn't Everything, It's the Only Thing. And that's a quote from Vince Lombardi. So I would say that it would probably be Vince Lombardi, Bobby Orr, and, and my late father would be the ideal threesome to join me in a foursome. What would you say to dad on the, on the golf course? <laughs> so much. Um, thanks a lot. Thanks for everything. He was the most loyal father. He was great. He was really great. You have a lot of relationships in hockey. I think hockey is a sport of, of relationships. And, and, and what, what strikes me about you is that you found a way against a lot of odds because you are a member of the media to forge some really meaningful relationship with, with players, some of whom have shared some deeply personal things about their lives with you which is fascinating. I think you said in an interview a couple of years ago that one shared a heart-wrenching story about his wife having a miscarriage. How did that make you feel? Oh, you know, I have so much respect for the players and their voyage to get to the National Hockey League. Um, I, I, I'd like to listen and hear what they have to say about their voyage. And every part of, every day is part of the voyage of being there. You know, in the NFL, it's not for long, not the National Football League. In the NHL, it stands for not here long. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a career that's very fleeting. And so everybody that gets to spend one day in the league, let alone 10 years, they all have a journey. They all have a story. And so I, I like to listen. And uh, I feel, you know, obviously for the players as if they were my own, because I this is the only job I've known every dollar I've ever made as an adult has been from hockey, whether it was as a pro player or as a coach or as a broadcaster or as a college coach, that's all I've ever done. And I'm so grateful to the sport, but also for the people that make up the sport, John, I really am. Inevitably you're in a position where you have to criticize players and, you know, it almost sounds trite to even ask you, but tell me about a situation where you, you delivered a, what you thought was a fair criticism to a player and either he knew you or not, but he came and confronted you about it. How do you handle a difficult conversation like that? I will tell you one thing. I always found that the very best players didn't have a problem being criticized. It was the guys that were living on the edge that were day-to-day -day to be in the league. They had more of a difficult time. And I was one of those players, so I kind of know where they're coming from. <laughs> um, I'll, I did a game once between Dallas and I want to say Anaheim and the great Mike Madonna was playing for the Dallas stars. And, uh, you know, it was after they won the cup, it was after the 99 cup. And so Mike was, you know, getting a little older and I, I had criticized something Mike had done. And I wanted to make sure that I was around because he probably would have heard about it. And my partner and I, Gordon Miller went down to the room afterwards. And this was before there was inside the glass and Mike had no issues with it at all. He goes, you know, I deserved it. I didn't play particularly well. So, yeah, I mean, I always found that the best guys never had an issue with it. But I think the number one thing as a broadcaster, if you're going to call somebody out, you make sure you don't run and hide. You make sure you go see them. You show up in the dress room, whether it's the next day or the next time you're in town. Or if they send you a note, don't try to hide saying, I never got that note. Answer the note right away or take the call. 
I think that's the important thing to do. And if you don't do that, then you probably shouldn't be in professional broadcasting. Have you ever given that advice to an, to a colleague or, or a mentor in the I, media I've industry? Told, I've talked to people that are in the media and I'm like, you know, you, you went after this guy pretty good, but yet you don't show up in the dressing room. And I said, I'm not sure that's fair to him. You know, I've been, I've been criticized a fair bit too by people that don't show up and ever want to see it. Uh, I wonder why that is. So I, I think the biggest thing, if you're going to criticize somebody, make sure you show your face so at least you can have a discussion with them and explain to them why you criticize them. And that conversation with the media member, you know, you, you giving them that advice or counsel, how did they receive that criticism, their, their own, that, that constructive criticism? Not too well, John, <laughs> to be honest with you, not too well. Um, so I, I've tried to just, you know, there's an old saying, as you know, from your time in pro sports, uh, a lot of times you just need to worry about yourself in those situations and don't criticize other people's work. So I've tried to go more down that road. Yeah, and I also think conversely, I think we also often overlook the role the, the media plays in bringing us the sports we love, uh, not just the folks in front of the camera, but the people working tirelessly to to storytell behind the scenes and in, in, in print, print and online and digital. And, uh, you know, you're, you are part of that community. Um, and so along those lines, I'm going to put, you, you now have the pen, Pierre, you, you have a chance to write a headline in the New York times, but it's the day after you've announced your retirement, write me the headline and, and tell our listeners what, what, what it would say, what it would read. Uh, Pierre Maguire walking away from the game that he loved and cared so much about and committed to throughout his adult life. It wouldn't be anything fancy. It's a game that I love. It's the, it's the position that I love. It's, um, you know, outside of my family, I don't have a lot of passions. I love watching football because I played it at a pretty high level. I like football. I like hockey and I love playing golf and I love being a father and I love being a husband. So, and I like being a friend. So I, I mean, for me, that's in my life. I'm not really complicated. Uh, my wife says to me, I wish you, you know, do more for yourself. And I said, no, I like to do more for you and the children. Because when I'm away, and I'm away a lot, as you know, um, it's hard. You know, I, I, my son, I haven't really been with him since he's been 13 years old. He's 18 now. He's going to turn 19. And, you know, he's going to be a freshman in college. And so it, I like being with my family. Pierre McGuire, you're very generous with your time. Thank you for spending time with us John, on the Sports Metric Project. I'm so grateful to be on your show. I had a blast, dude. I love seeing those footballs behind you, too. Get the old Duke out there. We'll throw it right. around a little bit. That's oh, right. my gosh. That's awesome. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it.